Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. Hi, this is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us in this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the article, Women in Pharmacy Leadership, The Journey Continues, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests are Dr. Leah Island, Clinical Professor and Associate Department Head of Pharmacy Practice at the Auburn University Harrison College of Pharmacy, Dr. Megan Swarthout, Director, Patient Care Services and Population Health, Johns Hopkins Health System, and Sarah White, retired director of pharmacy and one of the foremost contributors to advancing the roles of pharmacists as leaders and women in pharmacy. Thank you all for joining me today. Sarah, if we can take a step back for a moment, what was the objective in establishing the Women in Pharmacy Leadership Steering Committee in 2013? Great question, Dan. And before I specifically answer that, let me step back to in... uh, 2003, I was contemplating uh, with some friends, I didn't realize that that at Stanford at the hospital, I could actually retire when I was 58. And what allowed me to do that was the program that I was in, that it would cost, they would keep me in the employee health plan for only 50 bucks a month. It eventually got to 100 by the time I got to Medicare, but you can't buy health insurance for that. So at age 58, I thought, you know, there's a lot of things I want to do. And so I stepped back and called a few people to let them know that this was my choice because I didn't want them thinking I was being fired. And one of the people I talked to was Henry Manassi, who at that point was the executive of ASHP. And he said, why don't you think about coming and spending several months with us at ASHP as a scholar in residence, and we'll pay your expenses. You live on the East Coast. You do a project and get it published. And I thought, now yeah, that sounds pretty good. So I did do that. And out of that, as I thought about the project to do, was leadership. Since I had always uh, taught both graduate level and HPLA residencies, And so the survey then that got published, Is There a Leadership Crisis, was published in 2003. And it really came from that kind of project, which pointed out that we have a lot of people who do not want to be leaders. And we have a number of leaders that are going to be retiring. So it really didn't even take statistics to determine we were going to have a leadership crisis. And so that stimulated, I think, people thinking um, within SHP and other places. And out of that really came what is now the Pharmacy Leadership Academy. But more importantly, things like this steering committee on women in pharmacy leadership. And the challenge there was to how can we include and stimulate more women to really participate in leadership, not just at the entry levels, but move up and be the CEOs or the department chairs or directors or et cetera. So it's kind of an involved sort of process that has continued and does continue. And uh, I repeated the study seven years later and uh, found we'd made some impact, but there was still plenty of work to do. So that's kind of how things have evolved. Leah, Sarah refers to her early work and an analysis of where we were with 
individuals who had an interest in leadership positions and and really the status of leadership roles. Similarly, you took a look in the current paper at the literature in the the data regarding women in leadership positions. And what did you find? Thanks, Dan. So it's interesting in looking at our ASHP membership statistics, when we looked at our total membership within the organization, 66.1% identified as female. And looking at positions, our chief pharmacy officers and multiple health systems and vice presidents of pharmacy systems, they're almost 40% of ASHP members identified as female. For director of pharmacy or chief pharmacy officers of a single institution, we had essentially 48.4% of ASHP members identify as female. And then associate or assistant director of pharmacies, 53.3% of those members identified as females. And for a manager or supervisor, 61.8% of the members identified as female. So as you can see, we continue to have, I think it is a growth over time. We still have more in that first level, you may call it, of leadership, but we are seeing an increase. And then looking nationally, though, the 2019 National Pharmacists Workforce Study found that the proportion of women actively practicing in our profession continues to rise. Now, still what's interesting from that survey, less than 25% of female staff pharmacists indicated an interest in pursuing leadership positions. I really do think that we, as a profession, have to continue to encourage and sponsor women for leadership positions and even leadership development programs. Many women aren't comfortable taking initiative and doing it, but yet if you ask and they know someone believes in them, then they'll step forward. So I think there's a lot of work we can do in that manner as our numbers are increasing to have them continue. There's a number of things I'd like to delve into a bit further there in terms of the numbers. And the first is maybe to tackle head on a perspective that you you hear out there sometimes. And so if and I'd be interested in all your perspectives on this, but you know, some some folks would argue that the the you know the percentage differences between men and women in leadership positions despite the actual larger percentages of women in entry-level positions, is a quote-unquote tail effect or artifact from previous decades when the number of men exceeded women. And it'll, again, quote-unquote, just take time to catch up. How do you react to that perspective? Leah, I'll start with you, but I'd love for Sarah and Megan to, to weigh in on that as well. It, to me, it's an interesting perspective. I do remember hearing that, but yet I started pharmacy school 25 years ago and have been in the profession 20 years, and I don't see that effect changing. I don't see when I started school, you know, 60% of our class was female, and they were saying how we were in a transition period. 20 years later, I'm not seeing that be the sole change and seeing females only be 60%, you know, of the outcomes. I feel that we have to look at today's world and what people may think in the past, it may have been in the past, but what's happening today at your organization? Who are the leaders? Positions open. And I think they open frequently sometimes. And so when a position opens, who is the best fit to come in for the leader 
of that organization, for the people of that organization, people of the department. And so I don't believe it's still a trickling effect. I think we have to look at today and take action today if we don't like our current numbers. Got it. Sarah, Megan, what would you add to that? Yeah, I agree completely with what Leah has outlined. You know, we're going to talk more about academia, but there was a study done of looking at the demographics of deans of colleges of pharmacy. And actually, for the first time, the proportion of female deans declined from 2019 to 2020. And part of that was potentially uh, due to COVID-19 and the impact that has had, in some cases, disproportionately on female leaders. So I think this remains very much a challenge of today. And even going back to one of the statistics that Leah shared of, if our frontline folks, which is our pipeline for leadership, if less than 25% of women are interested in pursuing careers, I would say that's not a pipeline that's going to automatically kind of trickle effect help itself. If we aren't continuously focused on this, understanding what the challenges and barriers are and working to um, impact those, you know, going back to what what Sarah started with, and I remember hearing this in the steering committee, this is really a business problem. If we want the most talented people leading to address the complex challenges of our healthcare system today, then that means we need the biggest pool possible to find that talent. Um, And that's why diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts including looking at women in leadership, remains really imperative for all organizations. We want to make sure we're pulling from all talent pools to find the best leaders to help solve those problems. And as Leah noted, that requires action and attention today versus kind of apathy that it'll just, um, it'll correct itself over time. Sarah, when you reflect on this continuing hesitancy for Uh, that some women have in terms of pursuing leadership positions and then the COVID-19 effect that Megan was referring to, and then put that in the context of your early work, you know, what are are your takes on uh, these issues? Well, it's interesting in that I would have thought over time, women would be seeking these positions out They're not opposed to them, but they don't seek them out like men do. And uh, they worry about whether they are truly capable and uh, don't have the mindset that I can learn it as I go. And that's where training programs and other kinds of CE programs and just talking to other people is very helpful to them because their expectations for themselves are really too high. And... uh, I was thinking over time that would moderate some. I think it has a bit, but not nearly what we need. And I think the other thing that falls on the women are the whole balancing of career and life and young children and the ability to, to not have to give everything to the job so there's time left for your family. And there's no easy answer how to do that. That's something that each person and each family have to decide. And I think that's harder on women because they feel guilty about that more often than men do. But where those sort of signals come from, I don't know. I think it's somewhat better, but not significantly better. So, so Megan, Sarah's really started to delve into what some of the underlying issues are, you may refer to some of them as barriers, but how would you expand on that in terms of 
barriers that are unique to women in the pharmacy workforce today? And, and have things changed since 2013? Yeah, great question, Dan. So, you know, I think certainly we we all most are probably familiar in the news that caregiving responsibilities, whether those be aging parents or other family members or taking care of small children, disproportionately seem to affect women. Doesn't mean across the board, but in general, during the COVID-19 pandemic. And, and those things take real time, energy, and effort, whether that be helping to coordinate children's education, uh, just keeping up with general household tasks. And that can have an effect when I think the reality is most leaders are need to work more than 40 hours a week, but I think that there's opportunity to think about how to be more flexible with that. And I do think that that's maybe one of the silver linings that happened in the COVID-19 pandemic is, is there opportunity to work from home some days? Do I, can I do some of my work, stop, go do what I need to in terms of caregiving responsibilities and maybe come back at it at a time that works for me? And, and it looks like something now health systems and other workplaces are continuing to do, which is certainly encouraging um, as a way to look at that. I do um, also agree with Sarah that I think just being very visible and talking about this. Um, once we had the steering committee meeting, a number of articles have been published in AJHP. There's been a number of platform presentations. We have the networking sessions. We have ASHP Connect. We've created a safe space to say it's okay to talk about these things in a professional environment and say, how are you handling it? Or does somebody have any ideas? Or am I alone in facing this challenge? Um, and, and oftentimes when those types of questions get posted on ASHP Connect, you get a multitude of different answers, which is great. There isn't just one way to solve it. And I think about, I think it's about creating a community of support and then someone you can reach out to you to say, Hey, you know, this position got posted and I'm thinking about it, but gosh, I don't think I meet these criteria. Should, should I go for it or not? And somebody can say, yes, you should go for it. You meet the majority of those. You've got this or better yet, you know, that's really mentorship, but better yet sponsorship where somebody says, Hey, this position was posted and you should apply. And I know the person who's helping with the search and I'm going to connect you to it. And so I think really building the awareness and creating a community of support that's ongoing has been one of the really significant changes. I've also been encouraged by, by talking to individuals who have served in roles um, such as the board of ASHP or other national pharmacy associations, but I think a lot more thoughts been put into what is the travel requirement for that? How much travel requirement is required? How can we make this more flexible and doable for folks to think about from that perspective? So I think this has opened up dialogue to really recognize where can we be more flexible and how can we really create communities of support and say it's okay to talk about these things in a professional environment. As a follow-up to that, Megan, I'm interested in, in your experience at Johns Hopkins, maybe Leah, what you see at Auburn. And, and Sarah, I know that in continuous conversations with people around the country about their experiences, but so the communities of support, you really emphasized, Megan, the at a national level and how you can have sponsors through through professional organizations such as ASHP. But what about within Johns Hopkins? Do you have communities of support there within the pharmacy enterprise or other areas of the health system that have also benefited your journey? Yeah, absolutely. So most definitely. We have within our organization something called employee resource groups, and they recommend 
represent all kinds of different areas of, of diversity. And so it's completely optional, but you can join one, whether that be women in leadership, whether that be uh, related to your race or ethnicity, whether that be serving in the military previously, whether that be your sexual orientation. And they're just groups that get together and they make feedback and recommendations, the organizations of, of things that they would like to see in terms of resources more broadly, um, but also becomes a source of, of connectivity and networking internal to the organization. Um, the Johns Hopkins Hospital has um, its first ever female president. She's been in place now for, I think, getting close to 10 years, Dr. Redonda Miller. She's a physician and, you know, she's been a great example of this. Um, she has what I've when I needed to meet with her, she said, hey, can I take this on the road because I need to pick up my kids from gymnastics practice, right? And, and in some ways, just saying that out loud normalizes it, right? Like, let's figure out how to fit this in. And so I think that type of authenticity and visibility, you need to see people in those roles. You need to see, hey, they do it and it's messy and it's not perfect either. And I appreciate kind of the vulnerability that goes with sharing those things um, and leaders in place that, that make that clear. It's not about having it all or making it look perfect, but how do we integrate that work and life together? And sometimes it's going to be messy and that's okay. And your role models are showing you that that's okay. But I've definitely felt supported in that way through my organization. Leah, what about on the academic side at Auburn? Thanks, Dan. We definitely have opportunity in the academic side. As Megan said, too, even looking at that last survey of CEO deans, there's a decline that are the CEO deans that are female. You know, what's interesting there, going back to that study for a second, the average, excuse me, the median length of a CEO dean was only six years. And those that retired were eight years. And I think of it, do you really work yourself all the way up in a system to only be at that CEO level for, I would say, a shorter time? So are younger females getting into leadership earlier and we're going to have to handle staying in these positions, I think, at a longer time. And can we handle it with all of the external stimuli coming at us that have happened, like COVID and such? And so we do have different types of support within academia. At my college, I actually started a leadership article discussion about five years ago and invited faculty and staff who were interested in leadership. And we've talked about various articles. We've listened to podcasts and just sharing thoughts and having discussions about leadership. And then our university does have um, forums. We've got a women faculty forum that you can participate in. That's very helpful. And you can have mentorship from other faculty outside of your college and get perspective from the academic standpoint. And In academia, I think it's a little different. You know, we're either coming in trained as pharmacists and practitioners or researchers. We're not trained in administration, higher education, leadership. And so I do feel we need to do more of that earlier, especially today with the opportunity to be able to train and go to seminars and learn from each other in the video conference world today. It used to be like, I couldn't do that. I can't afford that trip and be gone for two weeks to the seminar. Now, We have a lot of opportunities that I hope we can continue to increase to younger pharmacists who are interested in leadership positions. And that may be academia or that may be within health systems and ASHP does programs. Other pharmacy organizations do um, leadership development programs as well. I've participated in those. They're very good for the academic standpoint. So I do feel like leadership is becoming more and more 
discussed in the whole university higher education world, but I still think we need to continue to do more and help sponsor others and see that a leadership opportunity is available for those interested. As I've observed you, Sarah, over the years, uh, my observation has been that you've personally committed to being both a mentor and a sponsor for a lot of people, um, but especially for a number of women in pharmacy. And so I'm interested in your perspectives on this topic as well. Yeah, Dan. And I think one of the major reasons that any meeting, there's a networking session, that they're well attended and everybody participates because it is an opportunity in a safe kind of small group setting to ask questions and to benefit from others' experiences. And I think you're right. I think most people that have been around a while are willing to help. They just need to know what your questions are. And that means time is of such an essence these days. It's how do we facilitate that? And so I have a lot of contact. The in-person meetings we lost there for a year or two, but it's nice that we're back going to meetings because we can have lunch or dinner and visit, but we can also visit with text messages and various other ways. So I think there are multiple ways to do this. And I think people just need to know they're not alone and people have figured this out and are continuing to figure it out. Megan, one of the points that is made in the article is the importance of promoting uh, culture and values that capitalize on women's gender style differences. And, And I can, again, recall listening to that discussion when the original group convened in 2013, think of gender as a a continuum versus binary. Is it possible that there's actually overlap in those styles between men and women and it's not quite that black and white? Oh, a hundred percent, Dan. And I think this is actually one of the things that that hopefully will be freeing about what we're what we're trying to do and build awareness of is that I've definitely talked to females and colleagues who say, I feel like I lead in a way that might be considered more masculine, but I have found it to be most effective to me and, and honestly who I naturally am. And so I, I think part of this is to say, look, neither males nor females and those that don't identify or identify with both genders, no one needs to be put in a box and their leadership should be able to be authentically there. So if if a, a woman is more directive, that shouldn't be looked at at this negative thing that they have to, you know, um, put lots of qualifiers in and say, I'm sorry, and tiptoe around things to try to have their ideas heard. They should be able um, to be directive without feeling like that's going to be met with, um, well, you should smile more or you should do these things, right? Some of the adages that we know are, are out there and have been given as feedback to women, even in recent years. And similarly, men shouldn't be held to some standard that that they have to be very directive and they can't be soft and they can't have feelings and they can never show emotion and, and all of the spectrum in between. So I hope that this work allows us to um, engage everyone to be an individual and recognize that even based on the situation and what else is going on in our life and just who we are, um, those things are going to change and we shouldn't be stuck in a box of, of what we have to use based on a gender we were assigned or identify with. It really should allow to be fluid based on the situation and and what we think as leaders is needed for that scenario. 
Sarah and Leah, I'd love for you to jump in in this discussion as well. Go ahead, Leah. I think Megan's done a great job, actually. (laughs) Well, Sarah, let me start, though, with you a bit there, because I guess one of the things that I wonder about is historically, because Megan started off with, you know, who I naturally am. But is it fair to say that historically um, women felt like they had to adopt a certain style to, to, to be successful? Or is that a myth? No, I think there was a lot of that kind of pressure because our numbers were so small that we were just a handful of that in any class. And so then to truly, you know, be what you wanted to be, you kind of sensed that you probably needed to modify, certainly. But that's changed over time. And I think as people have gotten a bit more adventurous, they're still conscious of it. And I'm sure guys are conscious of it, too. So it's just, again, stuff that's in process. Leah, anything that you would add? Yeah, Dan, I would think about the fact also... I think for women, we know our soft skills, we know our hard skills, but you may not share both of them up front. And that is something we touch about in the article, but really developing a career plan and then really showing that you have the business, the strategic and the financial acumen is very important. We may think, oh, they know I have it because I'm applying for this job. I wouldn't be applying for this role if I didn't have that type of degree or, you know, experience. But if we are not actively demonstrating those skills for then I do believe that is something everyone can do to strengthen their leadership capabilities. Leah, do I hear you saying um, that, in fact, there might there might be some perception again, maybe it's historical that women have to be more assertive in demonstrating their acumen and financial management business, those types of things? I think you do. Yes. I think depending on your situation, depending on your institution, you, you've you got to show that. It may be assumed you don't know that or you don't have the same qualifications or education or certificates and degrees that others do. And I think it can come from other females and it can come from males or any other you know, gender aspect. But if you as a leader want to demonstrate your skills, you need to demonstrate all of your skills. Sarah, that's actually a nice segue into the barriers that remain, which you you discuss some of those in the article. What are they? Well, I think we're our own worst enemy at times as a woman. We doubt ourselves more than we should. We should have faith that we will figure things out. We will learn as we go and not be too hard on ourselves. We tend to want to think we have everything figured out, and that's just not possible. So it's finding some support and enjoying what you do and realizing you're never going to get it all done, and so not trying to do everything. But I think Lee is right. You've got to demonstrate some of these things because the assumption is that you don't have those skills. But all you need to do is ask a question or two or in any way demonstrated, and that's taken care of. So you just need to be cognizant of that, I guess. And I think women are more at that. And I've always wondered how much society is sort of, I don't know what the right word would be, but kind of trying to get us as women to compete for men, for husbands, rather than compete for activities. And whether some of this 
very subtly. I don't think it's anything conscious, but I think the messages are still sort of there that if you irritate people, you may not end up with a husband. And uh, so, I, you know, there's just a lot of these things that continue to be interesting. They've gotten better, I think, over time, but they're still there, I think. Others can comment. And Megan, what would you add on there in terms of the barriers that remain? Yeah, one that we talk about in the article that I think is really important is that sometimes the feminism movement, if you will, has painted a broad brush that has been more preferential towards um, white women than of women of color. And I think that as we continue to move forward with this, we really need to recognize and listen to the voices of women of color and understand that the barriers they feel and experience are magnified because not only are they female, but they're a female of color. And that comes with a whole different set of challenges, experiences with structural racism that I have been privileged enough to not experience in my life. So I think a really important area of focus is really going to be listening and and engaging in anti-racism activities that supports our colleagues who are women of color. Um, Because I, I think that that remains at moments something that there has been intentional or unintentional harm done as we try to move the overall movement of feminism forward that we need to be cognizant of and and make sure that we're really taking strategies that are developed by women of color for women of color as we move forward. I'm really glad that you raised that, Megan. And if nothing else, uh, it's an opportunity to, to emphasize or to remind the listeners that We've published on this topic in AJHP uh, following an article by Bissell and colleagues on really sex discrimination, gender discrimination, and harassment in the profession. There was a follow-up article that really addressed the intersection of gender and race, and we did an AJHP Voices uh, interview with that group of authors, and I'd encourage the listeners, if you've not listened to it, it was an excellent discussion, very raw perspectives, to go back and listen to that because they, they really did delve into some of those issues that you were pointing out. Leah, as you think about the barriers that remain, what needs to be done to overcome those? Education. A lot of education. I think starting young, starting young in the profession, in the colleges and schools of pharmacy about leaders and that everyone can be a leader. We are all leaders in our profession. We have our big L's, we have our little L's. And so many times, even in my leadership class, I'm, I'm reading their final reflections from teaching this week. And it was, I didn't think about myself as a leader coming in, but now I've learned so many different definitions of leadership and what leaders do. And I see I am a leader and I'm going to now go forth in school and put my name in for an organization committee or a run for a position. And we've got to get into our profession to create the pipeline of leaders. And so I think we all see new practitioners and then you start to see them develop as leaders. They take initiative they show interest in something. And I think that's some, a key also that we have to do is encourage people to tell others what they're interested in. If they don't tell us we're interested in leadership or if they don't tell us what they want, again, going back to that career development plan, we can't help them. 
And so we may see leadership traits and characteristics that we say, great, you are doing a great job and we really think you should apply for this. Again, going back to how Megan was talking about mentorship and sponsorship, but it also needs to be the initiative of the person to bring forth what they're interested in so we can help them make the best use of their leadership pathway. So starting early, more development type of training programs that are tailored to these different areas. It's not a one size fits all. And so, and it's not a one time, it's a consistency type of education that I do believe we need to put in at the beginning of our colleges and schools of pharmacy education into PharmDs and then continue as our practitioners go into various areas of health system pharmacy. Sarah, what would you add to that? Well, I think we need to <clears throat> realize that we're never going to be totally finished and that we don't want to check it off, that we're going to continue to ask people, involve them, find new ways, enhance things like the networking, enhance uh, connect and other tools that are available so people can connect and, and uh, benefit from others' experiences. Um, so it's an ongoing process that's made great great strides, but there still are strides to be had. And with that, that's all the time we have today. I want to thank Leah Island, Megan Swarthout, and Sarah White for joining us to discuss their article, Women in Pharmacy Leadership, The Journey Continues, which was recently published on hhp.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with HHP authors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your colleagues and via your social media of choice. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.